Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community recently joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. June is Men's Health Awareness Month, and on today's show, which is being brought to you in part by Azi and Morphotech, we are going to talk about various men's health issues looking specifically at prostate cancer. We're going to examine the barriers faced by men when it comes to being proactive about their health, the role caregivers and others can play in men's health care, and talk about ways men can improve their ability to take care of themselves. So to kick off today's show, we're joined by three wonderful panelists who are here to discuss their relationship to and work within men's health and prostate cancer specifically. But before we dive into our discussion, I want to take a moment to just look at a few facts about men's health. Um, We know that American men tend to live sicker and die younger than um, American women, which is why we need to focus our attention on this discussion. We know that men die at higher rates than women from the top ten causes of death, including things like heart disease and cancer. Um, According to the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, one in six American men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in their lifetime. Um, But we also know that if detected early, prostate cancer is highly treatable. So men's participation in their personal health care has implications not only on themselves but on their families and, and also on society as a whole. So in the next hour, we'll be hearing from three wonderful guests about their work uh, in men's health. First, I'd like to introduce Teresa Morrow, co-founder of Women Against Prostate Cancer, an organization dedicated to providing support for the millions of women affected by prostate cancer and their families. Hello, Teresa. Hello. Thanks for having me. Sure. We're also joined by Fred Gersh, a 20-year-plus prostate cancer patient and longstanding advocate in the prostate cancer community. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, and welcome to you. 
And we're also joined by Betty Gallo, founder of the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey and the Director of Public Health Outreach and Government Affairs at the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center. This is a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center. Welcome, Betty. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I want to jump right into the conversation because we do have a lot to cover. I want to start with you, uh, Teresa. Um, let's start with just some of the quick facts um, our listeners should know when it comes to men's health and to prostate cancer specifically. Let's, let's lay some groundwork here. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, some of the facts, but in the U.S., men live on average five years less than their female counterparts, and that's uh, according to 2009 data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in the African-American community, we see even greater disparities in men dying, you know, more than six years younger than their female counterparts. So, Teresa, what's the average uh, average age at which men are dying in the U.S.? Uh, it's uh, seven, 75.3 years, I believe, is the latest <laughs> Okay, number. so in that 75 ballpark is what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, and women are closer to 80, a little mm-hmm. over 80. Mm-hmm. And, you know, men are leading out of in nine out of the top ten causes of death, heart disease, cancer, suicide, homicide, diabetes, and injuries. Um, one in two men will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, um, as well, one in three women, and the number one killer, cancer killer for men is lung cancer, fo- followed by prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And over the weekend, uh, the American Cancer Society actually just released its new estimates for cancer cases and deaths for 2011. Um, according to their new statistics, nearly 241,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, mm-hmm. and approximately 33,700 men will lose their lives to the disease. So both of these numbers are up from last year's estimates. Wow, wow. And I understand also that um, life expectancy for men in the U.S., Teresa, is much lower than many other developed countries. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, I mean, it's a a big part due to the American lifestyle and um, the lack of seeking out preventative health care. Mm, okay, okay. So that gives us some interesting um, kind of broad context, national context, and, the, you know, those are some, some big numbers that we're talking about here, especially prostate cancer. I think you said approximately 241,000 cases of prostate cancer this year alone? That's right. Wow, pretty, pretty intense. Um, so, so, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean for, uh, an American male? Um, uh, you know, I want to turn to Fred because we go from these broad numbers to a, to a very specific story, and that's your story, Fred. So tell us about your experience living with prostate cancer. When were you diagnosed, and what has that uh, path been like for you? I was diagnosed when I was uh, 52 years old. Now, that sounds, uh, like a medium age at the present time, but I was just taking a routine physical, mm-hmm. going from one job to another, and it was then that I was taking the digital exam that my general practitioner said that something doesn't feel right, so he arranged for me to see a urologist. And this was in 1989. And the PSA exam had only been out about a year and a half. So I was very fortunate to have uh, a, a series, the two tests, the digital and the PSA, which resulted then with a very high number, uh, 
mm. of the PSA, which resulted in me scheduling a biopsy for the prostate. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, then we arranged for surgery, which is the first mortality that I had. Eventually, my numbers rose again, and I had external beam radiation. Mm-hmm. That was two and a half years later. And then again, my numbers stayed down for two and a half years. And I went into hormonal treatment for four years. And for basically 11 years, I was in remission. But for the last 21 months, I've been experiencing uh, chemotherapy infusions, and I've had 27 to date every three weeks. So you, you so you got everything across the map here, Greg. You've got the surgery, radiation, hormonal therapy, chemo. This has really been a 20-year journey for you. Yes, and of course, there's a emotional roller coaster ride that goes along with that, with the highs and the lows, which makes it difficult when. You want to always look for the positive role here. And, um, uh, and, and you told me that, that they detected an abnormality when you were in for a routine physical. Did you, were you very good about sort of just getting annual physicals? No, I, um, I had actually retired from the military two years mm-hmm. before, and we did have routine physicals. But just going from uh, working at the U.S. State Department and going to the University of Maryland at College Park, I just took a routine physical. Mm. And this is an annual physical just to be sure uh, I was all right. And, of course, we get back the news that uh, there was an abnormality which resulted then in the biopsy, which was the confirmation that I had prostate cancer. And, and, and Fred, do you think that, I know, we're, you know we're talking about broadly about men's health today and also uh, specifically about prostate cancer, but do you think men have a harder time taking care of their health, seeking health care treatment on a regular basis than, than, than women? Have you in your life noticed any differences there? Oh, absolutely. If men are so macho, we don't want to admit that there's anything wrong with us. We'll spend more time taking care of our automobile and our personal pursuits rather than taking care of our own own, own body and uh, making sure that we're within the standards of weight, um, diet, and what have you. Yeah, yeah. I want to bring Betty into this conversation. Um, and, and, you know, Betty, we've got a couple minutes until we go to our break. But, but tell our listeners about your connection to prostate cancer. Well, my husband was the congressman, uh, Dean Gallo, of the, was for the 11th District of New Jersey. In 1992, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. His PSA was 883, mm-hmm. and they basically said he had three to six months to live. So, surprisingly enough, he went on a clinical trial at the National Institutes of Health, and his PSA went down to 3.5 the following year, and he survived two and a half years of uh, with a decent quality of life. So that's basically where I picked up my experience in learning is was being with him for that two and a half years going through prostate cancer. And so, so, um, so how how was you know was he diagnosed again? Was it through a routine physical or, or you know, was he pro- proactive about his um, his healthcare? Same question that I asked Fred. What do you see as the difference between sort of men and women and being proactive in their own personal healthcare? Um, he was proactive. The problem with it, as Fred had mentioned, the PSA really wasn't used as a marker at that point. Right. So Dean basically was complaining of back pain, and finally when they did diagnose him, they well they actually did a. Uh, 
they did a CAT scan and an MRI, and he basically said he lit up like a Christmas tree. So he had lesions all over his back and in his bones, so it already metastasized. So he tried, I, and he was good about having a physical once a year, but, you know, when you don't have all the good uh, ways to detect it, it makes it kind of difficult. And and do you in general, Betty, in your work, have you seen differences in terms of men and women and uh, in terms of being proactive uh, about their health care? Do you agree with Fred in terms of men, you know, sort of not being as proactive? And, you know, I, I, I like his analogy, men spend more time, you know, taking care of their cars than taking care of their health. <laughs> That's true, or pushing the, the numbers on the remote. <laughs> yes, that's very true. They take better, they don't, and I think part of the reason is they feel they can't make a difference, and that's where the problem comes in. What do you mean when you say that? Well, because they don't think that if they go to the legislator and explain their situation and give the legislators abilities to take things back to their people to say, look, we need funding for prostate cancer, unless they come to them with their stories, they don't have anything to use when they go back and say, hey, look, we need money for this. They actually need their constituents to come to the uh, plate and, you know, talk about their stories. Mm-hmm. And just, Teresa, quickly before we jump to our break, same question. Do you see differences between men and women in terms of seeking out health care and being diligent about that? Absolutely. There was a, a CDC study a few years ago that showed that uh, the rate of doctor visits for annual exams and preventive services was 100% higher for women than men. And I think that statistic kind of speaks for itself, you know, Men are resistant to go to the doctor if they're feeling good, and even if they're feeling bad, you know, they kind of put it off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think this sets a, a you know, a really good foundation uh, for the conversation today. This is, frankly speaking, about cancer. Uh, we want to let folks know that June is Men's Health Awareness Month. We're talking about men's health, and actually specifically today, uh, we're talking about prostate cancer, and Teresa mentioned at the opening of the show an interesting statistic, 241,000 men, almost a quarter of a million men in the United States will be diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, this year alone, and more than 33,000 men uh, will die from this disease. And so we're talking about uh, we're talking about these issues today because we think, and I think we all agree, that it's critical that we raise um, awareness around men's health. We're going to talk specifically about what uh, what men can be doing to be more proactive uh, around their health and, and, and around monitoring that. We're going to learn specifically about some things that are happening in the field of uh, prostate cancer, some of the um, uh, advances that we're making. You know, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier in the show that, that American men tend to live sicker and die younger than women, and we're certainly hearing from our expert uh, guests that men are not being as proactive in seeking out the care that they need and seeking out the health care. Um, you know, uh, average uh, life expectancy for men in the U.S. is uh, 75. Um, for women is uh, for women is uh, 80, and we're really learning that that's much lower than other developing countries, uh, developed countries. So um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions 
how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. June is Men's Health Awareness Month, and to kick off the month, we're talking on today's show about the importance of men becoming better health advocates. I'm here with Teresa Morrow, co-founder of Women Against Prostate Cancer, Fred Gersh, a 20-year-plus cancer patient and advocate, and Betty Gallo, founder of the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Um, Teresa, I want to pull you in here. Um, tell, Tell me, what are some of the differences between men and women when it comes to seeking health care, when it comes to seeking treatment and taking care of one's health? What, what are you noticing in your work? Well, you know, women were often conditioned as a young age to go to the doctor, you know, go in for our yearly gynecological exams. And, you know, while we might not enjoy it, of course, it becomes part of our routine, part of our lives. And men don't necessarily uh, experience that same thing. Uh, I've seen statistics that show over 7 million American men haven't seen a doctor in over 10 years. I mean, that's a long time when that, um, you know, problems like high blood pressure and diabetes can be progressing with no, no visible symptoms, and uh, many of these preventable health conditions could be getting worse. And, um, you know, men feel like they feel good, so they don't go to the doctor, and um, these conditions can just, grow and get worse over time. So your group, Teresa, is is women uh-huh. against prostate cancer. Women don't get prostate cancer. So uh, tell us about why you're reaching out to women to get the word out about prostate cancer. Well, you know, women are just such, they've been proven to be excellent advocates for their own health and for the health of their families. I mean, just look at the breast cancer movement. It's it's really remarkable, you know, 30 years ago, nobody wanted to even mention breast cancer, and today awareness is everywhere. They've done amazing work, um, you know, from working with the NFL to getting the pink ribbon on the bag of tortilla chips in the grocery store. You know, women have just been very active in speaking out about health issues, um, whether it be for themselves or for the family, and we know that of course, women don't get prostate cancer, but with as with any cancer diagnosis, it doesn't just impact the man. It can have, you know, financial, emotional, physical, spiritual impacts on the entire family. And um, we have gotten women involved, and they've been, it's been so great to work with them because they're, they're so passionate about speaking out about prostate cancer, about how it's impacted their families, and, um, you know, just, spreading the word about prevention and early detection 
so that other families don't have to go through what they've went through. You know, I, I read a statistic recently, Teresa, that said that, that women make the, the vast majority of healthcare uh-huh. decisions in this country. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Absolutely. Even, you know, when we're out at community events, you know, I can be passing out men's health information, but more than likely it's the women coming up, taking the information, saying, oh, I'm going to take this to my husband, my son, mm-hmm. um, and, and they do. And, you know, women are great about helping their, their loved ones set up doctor's appointments and, and um, you know, often planning meals so, you know, can impact the diet and all that. Mhm mhm. Um so 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 Betty talking about that kind of the woman's role uh, in healthcare. What what kind of role did you play during your your husband's cancer experience? Were you uh were you an advocate? Were you doing research? Were you, you know, what what was your role during that experience? Um basically I was more of the support person. I also was was an advocate. I was a little different with me because uh, since he was in Congress, we had to keep this quiet for the two and a half years he was had prostate cancer. So I couldn't just talk to anybody about it, so it made it kind of difficult. So, you know, he would let me know what the doctor had said. I would ask him questions to ask the doctor. He'd forget to ask the questions, and I'd get mad at him. You know, so it was a back and forth, you know, trying to be two sets, have be the second pair of ears, and yet he's not telling you everything. So when I got was able to get involved, and I would start to ask the questions, and uh, basically towards the end when he was in the hospital and whatnot, then I really kind of uh, was the one that kind of told, asked the doctors questions or, you know, asked them why they were doing something that they were going to do if they felt there was nothing, that something wasn't going to work. So I was, you know, I was a support person, and I always tried to keep the positive attitude with him, too, because I think that was so important. And, and he also had a very good attitude, so that helped a lot. And at what point did you guys decide to make his diagnosis public, Betty? Well, um, when he decided that he, when he felt he couldn't um, take care of his constituents anymore, he decided that he would uh, retire, and he did that in August of 94, and he died in November of 94. And so did he make, did you guys make a public announcement? How did you kind of yes. talk through the process of how he would make that announcement? Tell us about that. Well, he basically had a more or less like a press conference. In fact, they were supposed to have a golf outing that day, and it rained like crazy. And um, so anyway, he actually made an uh, announcement with the press and told them that he wouldn't be running for uh, election and had someone else that he was going to uh, support. And basically that's how it happened. A lot of people were upset because they didn't know, you know. But his concern was he didn't want them to feel sorry for him. He wanted, he, as long as he felt good, he wanted to be able to, you know, do his job and, you know, look out for his constituents. So his first concern was them and not so much what he was dealing with at that point. Mhm. Mhm. And what was the reaction like from the community, the reaction from his constituents when he made that announcement? Some were upset because, you know, like they hadn't told him and maybe they felt they could have helped him. Uh, a lot were very devastated because he made an impact on a lot of people's lives. Mm. And, you know, when, you know, the prostate cancer was basically getting the best of him at that point, you know, he wasn't able to do the things he wanted to do. And I think people felt that maybe it was a short time that they wished they could have had a longer time with him, even if it, mm. he did tell them ahead of time that he did, did have prostate cancer. So I think they felt kind of cheated in some respects. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But, 
Yeah, so that I think, you know, but he was trying to protect them in a roundabout way and probably protecting himself also because, you know, then you have to answer all the questions when you do tell people and how did it happen, you know, when did you know, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I think there was like, you know, a mixed reaction on this whole situation when he told them. And was that hard for you personally, keeping that information so quiet? Oh, yes, it was, because when I was working, he'd be in D.C., and I'd be up in, while I was working, uh, uh, he would call me to let me know how his PSA went, and if it went down, uh, that was great. If it went up, then, you know, you get that mood of, oh, my God, what are we going to do? But I couldn't say anything out loud because no one was able to know. So it was very difficult. Um, I A lot of mine was done through my religious spiritual. Um, that's how I kept myself going for those two and a half years. Mm, so important. We hear a lot of folks who talk about that, the importance of that, you know. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. You know, Fred, you talked about how, you know, oftentimes men are, you know, kind of macho and not really seeking out the care and the, the you know, the help that they uh, that they need. Um, have you felt that your prostate cancer in any way has has affected your sense of your uh, your male identity or uh, you know, issues around that? How how have you kind of coped both practically and emotionally with your diagnosis? Well, as I mentioned before, the roller coaster ride of emotions, the highs and the lows. When I was initially diagnosed, the, the number, my PSA number was 89. Now, automatically, that takes the mindset from 4 to 89, which is a high number. And the fact that I wasn't prepared, there were no support groups in the area. Yeah. Very few people that I knew in the area had even heard or talked about prostate cancer. In fact, mm-hmm. there were only two people where I worked. And mm-hmm. so what I had to prepare myself is do lots of research, find out what, when, who, how, and why, etc., and then go through what are the treatment options. And being quite young and running three miles a day, mm-hmm. I opted for surgery. But mm-hmm. then... As far as my maleness or what have you, I really didn't give it a, a thought of what I was going to lose because the fact that I was going to be alive and be there for my wife and my three sons and, of course, their families yeah. as uh, the time progressed. To me, that was extremely important than losing whatever one would say about their manliness. Yeah, yeah. And, and so tell us about the role that your family played through throughout your your and, and continues to play through through your cancer experience how how you know what role has have they played and have you turned to them for for support have they been uh, you know active in uh, in this journey absolutely uh, my first concern of course is I have three sons as they progress in age are they mm-hmm going to be vulnerable, and of course we know that uh, there's a 97% chance that they'll get prostate cancer with a first-degree relative, um, so I've been encouraging them to make sure that they watch uh, their their numbers to for early detection. Additionally, the family, of course, as we make decisions, uh, one of the interesting things that happened is I went when I went to the second treatment, the local hospital asked me to start a men's prostate cancer support group, which I've been doing now for 20 years. Uh, it's amazing. We meet 
the third Tuesday of every month. And though we may not get a lot of people in the room, we get a number of people who return and we provide that awareness. And Frank talk that tries to overcome their fear of what they heard. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. as Betty said, the caregiver uh, takes all the notes. The husband is probably uh, still in shock and doesn't remember many of the things the doctor has said. And so also I participate in health fairs and other open activities in order to make awareness uh, at the top of the line, so to speak. And so, Fred, are your sons being closely monitored then? Well, I ask that they get their PSAs uh, once a year. Um, they have, but uh, what they generally tell me is that, Dad, I'm okay, mm-hmm. which, which to me is, is not the specifics that I'm looking for. <laughs> so, so, Teresa, we're going to the break, but, um, uh, but just quickly, can you tell us what you know about, you know, whether the situation that Fred mentioned, that, that he had prostate cancer, are, are his sons at higher risk? Should they be monitored differently? Or what, what is the standard for, for screening for prostate cancer? Absolutely. They are definitely at higher risk. I, I think Fred mentioned that... Um, was 97% for first-degree um, relative. So, um, you know, we are always encouraging men to know their family history, and especially, you know, if you have father, uncle, grandfather with prostate cancer, make sure you're getting in early for um, preventative screening, whether that's um, at age 35 or um, some groups suggest 40. We, we encourage 35 is great age to get a baseline PSA and DRE, mm-hmm. um, and then go from there, but um, especially if you're at high risk. And so so that, so is that being said, is that, so does that mean that we know that there's a genetic link with prostate cancer? Is that, do we know that? Is that what leads to that risk? Do we know about that, the genetics of this? Yeah, there is, um, there has been a link just in family history um, there in the past, so. That's been shown. Say that again, Teresa. There has, I mean, it, there has been a link between in family history that's been shown. Okay, so, so, uh, so we're basically telling men who have prostate cancer that they really need to go and talk to their doctor and get their PSA checked. Absolutely. Okay. All right. One of the and, things, if I may, just yes, comp- expand on that. In my support group, uh, when we talk about who else in your family has had it. It's interesting that particularly to learn that there are uncles and grandfathers Mm -hmm. that had it that they didn't realize. They just said he had the disease, but they never described what it was. Right. When we have African-American men, again, it's not the one in six, it's the one in three. Right. That we're quite concerned about. So, again, early detection is what we're... Critical, critical, and we need to be having those family conversations. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. 
how to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. June is Men's Health Awareness Month, and on today's show, which is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Celgene, we are talking about men's involvement in their personal health care, and we're looking specifically today at prostate cancer, a disease that affects one in six men, Um, and again, as uh, Fred mentioned before the break, even higher rates in African-American men. Uh, I'm here with Teresa Morrow, co-founder of Women Against Prostate Cancer, Fred Gersh, a longstanding prostate cancer patient and advocate, and Betty Gallo, founder of the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Um, uh, in light of the show today, I just want to take a moment to tell our audience about some of the things that we're providing at the Cancer Support Community, our programs and resources. We've got 50 centers around the country where we're offering face-to-face support groups and educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. Uh, we've got support groups and, and networking groups online as well. Uh, at cancersupportcommunity.org, and um, I'll uh, provide a few additional kind of facts and tips at the end of the show, but just want to let folks know that they don't have to face cancer alone, that we've got a whole network of support out there uh, for, for, for men, for women, for patients, survivors, caregivers, um, and we want to make sure we're uh, letting folks know about that on the show today. Um, Betty, I, I want to go back to you um, as, a, as, a, as a caregiver, as a wife, um, can you just talk a little bit about how your husband's cancer diagnosis impacted your your relationship uh, with him? I mean, you know, we, we, we hear all kinds of things from folks about uh, about how cancer, you know, does impact personal relationships. Can you share a little bit with us about that? The bottom line was, you know, he was in Congress, macho, the whole bit, doing his thing, and when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, we had to relook at everything in our life. You know, I didn't know how this was going to impact us. He didn't know how it was going to impact us. Um, The one thing it did impact us was he was on a clinical trial, but he was on hormonal therapy, which makes men impotent. And so this was a part of our relationship that we had to focus in on because of the fact that, you know, I was younger than he was, and, you know, I loved him, I wanted to be with him, but the hard part was you didn't know what to do. All you knew was you were dealing with his cancer, and the main thing was just keeping him alive at this point. Yeah. So with our relationship, we kind of put that to the side, and uh, yeah. what it did for us, to be honest with you, was it made us closer. Uh, mm-hmm. It was two and a half years of my life that I uh, had a different relationship with Dean. Um, we th- saw things differently. We spent time in church. Uh, we uh, just 
you know, we went on a cruise. We did a whole bunch of things that we wouldn't have done, and he looked at things a lot differently for the better. So in that time, in that time frame, that two and a half years, we became very close. And I, as I tell everyone, I'll probably never have that kind of relationship again with anyone mm-hmm. because it does really, it can either make or break you. You know, it can mm-hmm. split couples up. It can make cu- couples come closer together, I mean, in any type of cancer. So, uh, but, the, you know, it, it did impact us. It was sad to some degree, too, because, you know, I didn't want my husband to die. He was only 58 years old, and mm-hmm. it was very difficult to watch him at the towards the end deteriorating. And, you know, he was a man of, you know, 6'3", big stature, and people respected him. And it just was, the whole thing was just, was difficult. But, um he he really helped me grow in a lot of respects. So through that time frame too, it helped me to be a different person for the better. And so, uh, so are there, were there things that you did to cope uh, to support yourself through the experience? I mean, two and a half years was a long time to put uh, put things on hold. Um, Betty, did you find that there were things, ways that you found to cope yourself and, and found your way through this? Well, the whole thing is I basically at that point when he was diagnosed, I I was always kind of a churchgoer and I hadn't gone and I finally prayed about it once he, I found out and I hadn't done that in a while. And I really kind of hung in on, on to that, um, you know, my spiritual uh, part and Dean came into that. So that kind of helped us both. I mean, even when his PSA was going up, um, I used to have my music, my Christian music in the car, and I'd be singing along with that, you know, hoping and praying that God was going to take care of them. And that's how I basically kept myself going uh, along with uh, working. And uh, um, I had an eight-year-old son. Well, he was at 16 at that time, so he kept me busy, too. So, um, But it was... Um, it wasn't easy. There were times that towards uh, one point we were in Washington, I would take a piece of bubble gum, and I, we, he lived in, a, we lived in a complex, you know, a townhouse complex. I'd walk around halfway, throw that gum, in the, and then put the other piece in and walk around. So we kind of got rid of the tension at the same time, you know. So that was one way I coped, you know. Um, but it's kind of hard when you can't tell anybody. You've got to find your own way of coping, and that's why, uh, again, I think I went back to, you know, my spiritual side. And did you did you tell family, Betty? Did you talk about this within your family? Um, most of the, yes, most of the family did. Especially the immediate family knew about it, but they all knew that again that they had to keep it on the on the quiet side because of, you know, where he was at as far as at work and being a congressman and whatnot. So um, it it did make it difficult, but th- then again, the family we did have each other to talk to, which was good. Right. 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 Well, we hear so many people talk about turning to to, to you know faith. Um, in in that time of crisis, and so it's. Uh, I think it's sometimes comforting for people to hear that that is you know something that helped you through, um, you know, the experience. Um, well, one of the things I want to just say, Kim, is yeah. that uh, when I talk to God, as I tell people, when Dean was first diagnosed, he said to me that he was going to heal him. And a week before he died, I said something to my pastor, and he says, Betty, he doesn't always heal physically, he heals spiritually. So that's what happened to my husband. And it was a very comforting thought at that point, you know. So, um, you know, through the difficult times, there are some positives that come out of it. Yeah, and, you you know, you talk about the... uh the, the special things that you guys did and the, uh, you know, kind of awareness that the cancer brought into your lives and into your relationship that you, you said w- wouldn't, wouldn't have happened otherwise. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Teresa, what, what, uh, 
What are you seeing in terms of the importance of of, of that kind of this kind of communication that Betty's talking about when it comes to personal relationships as well as you know kind of communicating with the healthcare team? Can we talk about that a little bit and even any tips that you might have for um, improving communication, whether it's you know in a family between a couple with the doctor? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, obviously those personal relationships are so important, and it's really up to a man how much he wants to share and who he wants to share it with. But, um, you know, it's important to know that confi- confiding in a trusted friend or family member can um, really help a man, you know, just talk through some of his feelings and frustrations. And, and you know, you never know if a friend has been in your your same shoes and they've never shared it before. So, you know, they can definitely provide support and advice in that way. And uh, as far as, you know, working with the healthcare team and, and, you know, improving communication with your doctor, it's just so important for men to remember that, you know, just be honest with your doctor. You only get to see them a couple times a year at the most. They don't really know, you know, what's going on with you day in, day out your responsibility to give your doctor the information that they need to do their job, Um, you know, paying attention to changes in your body or things that are bothering you, know your family history. We've talked about it a a few different times, especially in prostate cancer. Know your family history and share that with your doctor. It can really have a, a big impact on your health, whether it be cancer or heart disease, cholesterol, um, any of those. And, you know, before you go talk to your doctor, write down questions, worries, concerns that you might have. It's so easy to forget those things as you're sitting there on the exam table. And remember that even, like, embarrassing things, your doctor, whatever you tell your doctor is completely confidential, and it's highly likely that they've heard it all before from mm-hmm. other men. Um, so just being honest and open with healthcare professionals is really the best best approach. Um, you know, Fred, we're just we're going to go to the break in, a, in another minute or two, but um, ha- have you, you know, had a chance to communicate with other men who, who uh, might have prostate cancer or, or be at risk for prostate cancer about becoming more, more proactive uh, uh, about your health? What has your role been as an advocate in prostate cancer? Well, twofold. Uh, back in the support group phase, it give, does give the a couple, generally a couple, um, male, female, or of course uh, uh, a gay couple, to to talk about where they are on their journey and listen to others where they are on their journeys. So it gives, yeah. in my case, it was a subtle way for me to talk with somebody else besides my wife and the doctor to know that there were some positive things we could do, like be sure about the questions, getting the second and third, fourth opinion. What are the options for treatment? And in the advocacy role, several times a year, uh, I join a group of people who ask for research funding in the, the Department of Defense or in the, the NIH, NCI, and CDC programs so that we can at least educate those uh, staffers and, of course, Congress persons to ask for uh, research funding. And in continuing to do that, it's a matter of just making awareness by participating in health fairs, various men's and women's local group, community groups, 
and uh, participating with emails and letter writing and besides the personal visits to the uh, offices on Capitol Hill. Mhm mhm. And and uh and and Betty are you um is is there some work that you're doing to help men be better uh advocates for their health and really, you know, speak up and be more vocal about their health care? Well, I've talked to them and I've tried to get them to understand the importance of, again, speaking to their legislators and let them know the importance of, you know, funding. I've also explained to them at times I've gone to health fairs and one gentleman said to me something about, did I want to, you know, he didn't want to go and have the digital rectal exam. And I looked at him and I said, my husband died from this disease and I'm here to make sure you don't. So get in there. Um, yeah. You know, you try to be and explain to them the importance, you know, of how they need to speak up and they need to be, you know, getting their PSA checked. Um, you know, at health fairs, I always say that to them, you know, have you had your, yeah. you know, prostate checked. So you do try to be as positive and get them to be, as, you know, that the importance. And it's not as all as bad as they think it is. You know, right, right. Itself. So that's what you try to do. Uh, no, I think that's great advice, Betty. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, we're talking about men's health. Uh, June is uh, Men's Health Awareness Month, and and um, we're also talking specifically about uh, about prostate cancer. I, uh, we learned earlier in the show that 241,000 men will be diagnosed this year in the United States uh, uh, with prostate cancer. It is the second cancer killer uh, among men, only second to lung cancer uh, in this country. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back for our final segment, learn a little bit more uh, about Teresa's organization and Betty's organization, have some final thoughts. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, As we've been discussing throughout the show, June is Men's Health Awareness Month, and we're talking today about the importance of men becoming more involved in their personal health care, particularly when it comes to prostate cancer, a cancer that is on the rise in the United States. Uh, we've had uh, a great conversation with Teresa Morrow, uh, co-founder of Women Against Prostate Cancer, Fred Gersh, a longstanding prostate cancer patient and advocate, 
and Betty Gallo, founder of the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Um, uh, Teresa, I'd love for you to share with our listeners some of the programs and resources that your organization offers for women to help men become stronger advocates in healthcare and, and more aware uh, of the, the, the risks and the needs of prostate cancer patients and also let folks know where they can find you. Absolutely. Well, Women Against Prostate Cancer, we're a fairly new organization, and we've been working on developing some resources specifically targeted to the women who have male loved ones with prostate cancer in their lives, whether it be their husband, their partner, their son, their father. Uh, We've developed uh, pieces like a, a treatment guide that talks about the different treatments for prostate cancer and the side effects and what all is involved with those treatments. We've um, collected information on clinical trials and intimacy after prostate cancer and a lot more. And all of that information, um, fact sheets can be found on our website, which is womenagainstprostatecancer.org. And also on the website, you'll find an online portal that we have where women have shared their stories or can share their stories if they want you know, can talk about the fears, hopes, and dreams um, that they, they faced when their loved ones have been diagnosed, and they can support one another and just know that there are other women out there facing the same feelings. Um, we've also developed several local chapters across the country where mm-hmm. women are able to come together in their own communities. You know, some of the groups have uh, support groups and some just focus more on outreach activities and ways that they can make an impact in their states. Um, And later this year, we'll be hosting our second annual Advocacy Day here in Washington, D.C. And as um, Fred and even Betty alluded to earlier, it's a chance for women to come together to learn more about prostate cancer and to, um, more importantly, go up on Capitol Hill, meet with their legislators, and share their stories of how the disease has impacted their their lives, their families, and their communities, and really encourage legislators to do their part in, in helping end this disease. And, Teresa, they can find out about all of this on womenagainstprostatecancer.org. Correct. Okay, excellent. And, Betty, um, Betty Gallo, can you please tell us a little bit more about the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey? What are some of the programs and, and services that your organization offers to help men in the fight against prostate cancer, and how can folks find you? Sure. Um, we are actually, uh, the Cancer Institute in New Jersey is actually New Jersey's only NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center. So we treat all cancers. But within the Cancer Institute, we have established a center called the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center, which basically uh focuses in on prostate cancer. Uh, we have clinics. We have our own laboratories. We do research. We also have um, clinical trials uh, for patients to come in. Uh, we have all national trials because we have to re- we report to the National uh, Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. Um, but we uh, do do all sorts of things for men that have prostate cancer, um, you know, from early stage, even prior to that, up to advanced stages. Uh, so we have that. And as far as what I do, um, I basically, we have screenings here uh, in September for free. We uh, do health fairs and also we do lunch and learns. So uh, we try to do the best we can to get out there to talk about prostate cancer because there's a real, real big need for it. And uh, 
you know, just let you know that if you want to get a hold of us, it's uh, www.cinj.org uh, backslash Gallo. And uh, they can reach us through there. And, um, you know, we in any way we can help anyone, if they've got prostate cancer and want to come for a second opinion, we're more than happy to have them come here. Fantastic, Betty. Thank you. That's that's great. Um, and and Fred, what are some of the advocacy initiatives that you're working on uh, in the fight against prostate cancer right now? Well, part of what we do is uh, we're only a, one of the support groups that are is under the umbrella of the US Two International Education and Support Network. US Two International's headquarters is located in Donna Grove, Illinois. But we have some 320 support groups in the United States and overseas. And with the literature that we have available in the newsletters, we make the community aware, particularly the male community, aware of what they can do from an advocacy viewpoint mm-hmm. in writing to their congresspersons, um, making people aware of the various treatment options, brochures, uh, that are that cover the the bone issues, the medical issues, so that they can better prepare themselves for going to the next phase. And certainly, in the newsletters, we talk about the latest developments and uh, from the uh, pharmaceutical viewpoint to help prepare the men and their families uh, what's coming down the pike should something fail in the treatment that they're presently taking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and I, all of this is, is tied then to make sure we get more research funding uh, because of the budget issues this year. Uh, it would be uh, extremely uh, poor to, uh, if we weren't able to maintain that research uh, arm that we have in this country to continue uh, finding new treatment options and hope for the patient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, very helpful, and I, uh, you know, we'll give a shout-out to uh, to us, too. I know that the, that group is run by uh, Tom Kirk, and um, the, their, uh, the organization is a very good friend of ours, a very good friend of the cancer support community, so uh, we appreciate all that they're doing to support men with prostate cancer and their spouses and families. Um, uh, this has really been a very informative show, and um, I want to uh, thank you guys for being on the show today. It's been a really great conversation. I want to thank Teresa Morrow, co-founder of Women Against Prostate Cancer, Betty Gallo, founder of the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey, and Fred Gersh, uh, a prostate cancer patient uh, and uh, advocate who's been battling prostate cancer for 20 years and uh does quite a bit to be out there to educate and uh, advocate on behalf of better care, better treatment, and uh, uh, higher awareness. Um, I mentioned earlier on the show that the, uh, the the cancer support community, the organization that I have the privilege to lead, offers a variety of patient support programs and educational materials that, that really do focus on empowering patients, uh, survivors, families to communicate um, and work more effectively with the healthcare team. Um, we also have information uh, about prostate cancer available uh, on our website. If you'd like to learn more about our programs, if you'd like to read about prostate cancer uh, on our website, uh, visit cancersupportcommunity.org or you can call us at 
888-993-9355. Teresa, tell us again the website of, uh, of your organization. It's womenagainstprostatecancer.org. Great. And, uh, again, on that site, you can find a whole host of information uh, about uh, different uh, support resources, educational materials, how to become an advocate and get more involved um, uh, in, the, in the fight on Capitol Hill for more research funding uh, uh, for prostate cancer. Um, Betty, tell us again uh, how folks can uh, find the Dean and Betty Gallo Prostate Cancer Center. Uh, they can do it through uh, www.cinj.org backslash gallo. Great. Um, Fantastic. So it's NCINJ Cancer Institute of New Jersey uh, backslash gallo. Fantastic. Um, so we would encourage folks to uh, to check out these resources and take advantage of all of the wonderful support and educational resources that are out there. Uh, you know, earlier this month we all uh, took a few minutes to celebrate uh, uh, Father's Day, and uh, we wanted to, to dedicate the show to all of our dads uh, who we celebrated on that day. I hope that our listeners will share the information that we've discussed today with the special men uh, in their lives, talk to them about the importance of uh, being proactive participants in their own health. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Thibaldo. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>